Hello all, welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 4. Hey, this is my year, get your own. So, as always, before we actually start on this episode's subject, we need to talk about the mistake from last week. Alright, so what was the mistake? Well, it was Frederick. Frederick the Great did not lead the Germans to defeat the Romans in their first contact. Frederick the Great is actually from Prussia from the mid-1700s. We will actually spend quite a bit of time talking about Frederick when we reach him, but he does not play any part in early German history. We actually don't know who led the group of Germans who attacked the Romans in northern Italy. We just know that it's a group of people called the Cimbri, who showed up in about 113 BC, defeated not just one, but two Roman armies before moving on to Spain. But we won't get into detail about that until later. So, just remember that was last week's mistake. Look out for this week's mistake in this podcast. If you think you know what it is, go ahead and go to the Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash podcast on Germany. You'll find a post there about episode four. Put your comment below that and find out next week if you're correct. All right, let's move on to other news. First, I have been working with iTunes, and I have good news. I've finally been able to figure out what was going on with Podcast Connect. We should be able to upload episodes up there pretty soon. I've talked to them, and they're reviewing the episodes right now. It should take about a week or so, but once they've approved it, it'll be up on iTunes. You can download it from there if you'd like. If you can think of any other places you would like the podcast to be on so you can download it, just let me know. You can email me at podcastongermany at gmail.com. You can also Facebook message the podcast page. And if you haven't yet, please go ahead and subscribe to either the Facebook page or the website or both if you'd like. There's no fees attached. But this will allow you to get updates to your emails from the webpage and also to spread the news about the podcast on Facebook. All right, so that's all I had to say news-wise. Let's go ahead and get start talking about these early Germans. I know I've been making you wait for a while. It's episode four, and we're actually going to start talking about people. But... It was well worth the wait. We needed to talk about a couple of other things before we could talk about those we call the Germans. Now, we have to figure out when the Germans actually show up in Germany. It's not like they just magically have been there this entire time. Just like the Native Americans, they somehow have to be brought into Germany. Unfortunately, we don't have a good time to look at that we can say clearly this is when the Germans show up. Now you're probably wondering, okay, Jacob, how would we establish when the Germans arrive? That's a good question. We try to look at archaeology, buildings, the material culture, to see if we can find a uniformity from who we knew the Germans were, and try to go back along older sites and see if we can find something that shows that they are related to the Germans we knew. We also tried to look at language. For the Germans, they have a specific break away from Latin. They have a certain break away from these languages that form their own little family. It's why German 
English, and a couple of other places in Western and Northern Europe don't speak a Latin-based language, but speak a Germanic-based language. So Germany is has its own language base, and we can talk about that in a special episode if you guys would like to. But we use archaeology, and we use language, trying to form a basis of who the early Germans were first, and then trying to figure out where they first come from. It's kind of hard to figure out an exact point for either one. First of all, our language-based studies are going to be based on written sources more often than not. We have a couple of items with markings and so forth, but for the most part, there's no written down Germanic language that we can understand that doesn't come from after the Romans arrive on the field. In fact, the first translated Germanic language will show up towards the end of the Roman Empire. So there's this large gap of Germanic history before the Romans show up that we don't have a language that we can use, that we can follow. So kind of hard. Archaeology, on the other hand, we have a couple of things that we can use, and we'll talk about them a little bit further into the episode. But again, we don't have anything that we can point to specifically that says this is Germanic and it stays Germanic. There's just too much going on. There's too much sharing in cultures, specifically with the Russian steppes. That's going to be a huge problem when we're trying to distinguish Eastern Germanic groups and the Russian steppe groups. Now, if we go off just the written historical accounts, we can say that the Germans were there around 330-300 BC. So, if we were just saying, based off written accounts, Germanic history is about 2,300 years. So, 330s, 300 BC, we have this journal that's mentioned throughout the classical world from an explorer called Pythias of Masala. Now, Pythias comes from the colony of Masala, which is modern-day Marseille, and was a Greek explorer. He was well-known by the Mediterranean world. Everyone was talking about him. The problem is we actually don't have Pythias' journal. We don't have his notes about his exploration. What we have are tidbits from his work. That comes from writings such as Strabo's Geographica, Pliny's Natural History, and Bilbo's There and Back Again. It's very frustrating because we don't have this full work, but everyone talks about it. It's like listening to someone tell you about Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back and spending the entire time nitpicking it. You've never been able to see this movie. You don't know if it's good. You don't know if it's bad. And everything you hear is just nitpicking, constantly critiquing it. And they'll give you little tidbits. They'll tell you a little bit. They'll mention Hoth, this ice planet, and how unrealistic it is. Or they will mention Bespin, the city in the clouds, and how that's physically impossible. It's very frustrating. There's another issue we also have with Pythias' work. Sometimes the sources mention how they haven't actually read the work themselves. But they've read someone else's work who may have read Pythias' work or has read someone else's work who's read Pythias. It's frustrating. 
He mentions visiting Britain. He mentions going into the Baltic. He finds where the Vistula comes out. He finds what he calls the edge of the world, this giant ice area. Now you're probably wondering, why was he not being given credit for this? Why was the Mediterranean world scoffing at him? Well, there were a couple of issues. First of all, a lot of his writing apparently was very fantastical to them, you could say. It was made to be unbelievable to him because it it was just too crazy to be true. He also had issues because he wasn't noble. He was a poor peasant. He wasn't someone rich. There's no way he could fund this expedition by himself. And historians still argue over Pythias's work. Now, many do agree that he had to have gone on this trip. They don't know how he got to go on this trip. You see, Pythias was poor. There's no way he could fund it himself. So where did he get the money? Some historians argue that he got the money from other merchants. They funded his trip because they were looking to expand their trade routes. They wanted to see what was on the other side of the Straits of Gibraltar. And so Pythias went exploring for them, went to go see if there was areas worth trading in. Unfortunately, we'll never get to see the extent of his work. But he is the first one that mentions the Germans. He is the first one to separate who we call the early Germans from the Keltoi, or the Celts. See, to the Greeks, the Keltoi were everyone who lived north of them. It was just this large group of people who just lived north of them. That was all. Now, we know that he did go on this part of the trip because he talks about something that's called the leavings of the frozen sea. And we believe that this is amber that he's talking about which was being collected and used by the inhabitants for fuel and trade goods. But he's the first one of our written sources to mention a people distinct from those the Greeks knew that lived to the north. And unfortunately, he is the only written source we have until 100s BC, when the Germans run into the Romans in northern Italy. Now, the rest of our information for these early Germans are going to come from our findings in archaeology and studying the land itself, studying the environment. Now, from the land studies, we have been able to figure out that someone was using the land by 4000 BC. That's when we have the first evidence of human interaction with this land, human exploitation of this land. But we have no idea if they were German. We do know that there were some settlements built, and that the population continually increased, but were they Germans? Would they have been recognizable as those that Pythias ran into in the 300s? We don't know. And this is a clear issue for historians who talk about the early Germans. Do we set early Germany starting in 4000 BC, or do we set it in the 300s BC? Those who argue towards the 4000 BC say that these are in fact Germans because Our findings show a lack of major disturbances. We're not seeing settlements being destroyed by man in this time period. We're not seeing evidence of major fighting, of migration. And so they're arguing that from 4,000 all the way up to 300, the Germans stay in this relative area. Their culture is still the same forward and backwards. Their language changes, and some minor things change. But overall, these are the same people that show up. 
The others argue that even though there's no signs of disturbances, there's no way that for almost 4,000 years there were no disturbances in Germany, especially considering what we see in Germany in written history since then. Can you think of a single area in the world that has survived 4,000 years without major upheavals, without changes in culture or people? It's really hard to find one. And it's highly doubtful that an area like Germany, which will have major disturbances for the early Germans all the way up to modern day, could survive that long of a period without major changes in their culture and their people. I tend to agree with those who argue that the Germans of the 300s are not the same people of the 4000 BC. It doesn't make sense that those who live here towards the turn from BC to AD would face all the strife that somehow didn't affect those who lived there way before. But we'll never know unless someone makes a time machine and takes us back there. So, what do we find in this time period of 4000 BC to the 300s BC. What is in Germany that we can study physically? Well, we have these mounds and platforms that are raised by hands, and they have several different names. In Holland, they're called turpins, and in Germany, we call them verts. These verts, they form the basis of settlements throughout what we would consider early German territory. Now, unfortunately, a lot of these have been destroyed specifically in the last 200 to 300 years because farmers have found the organic material that is inside these verts make excellent fertilizer and have plowed or drained these verts in order to get to that. Despite the destruction of the majority of these verts, the ones that we have been able to study have protected artifacts and structures. These artifacts and structures have survived because they were in such wet conditions. They were waterlogged. As we continue to discuss early Germans in later episodes, you will find that a lot of the material that we get doesn't come from dry sites. They've been submerged in water. The water protects the material from the ravages of time and slows the process of decay tremendously. The earliest known vert that we do have that we've been able to fix in a time period is around the 6th and 7th BC. We know that verts were made from the clay that would be slowly piled up over time to form these mounds. These verts are originally built along the coastline to help protect against flooding. It's a simple idea. You raise the land that you're going to put your house on and the flooding will affect everywhere else before it reaches your home. These verts will allow people to actually build on the coastline where the marshland and the constant changing ocean have made it impossible for normal settlements to be built. Now, most verts that we have studied don't last too long. They don't make it past the first level of mound building. And what happens is, as you build your mound, you continuously build it up in order to protect your homes. And if you don't make it past the first layer, then you typically have abandoned it at some point to move on to other lands. And we'll talk about the reasons for that later on in the episode. But most verts that we found don't go past the first mound level. At a place called Paterpoil, we find examples of these verts. 
their six dwellings that coexisted but were independent of one another during this primary mountain stage. Now we know they abandoned the settlement before building the mound past the primary stage. The settlement was built near the coastline, and it's not one of the longest lasting ones that we have. So, it could have been destroyed because of flooding or natural disaster in the area. Now compare this to the mounds that we found at Nzinge. Now Nzinge comes from around 500s BC, and we know that this settlement actually started out on flat land. Slowly, over time, it built into several small stages of the Wurz before forming 15 longhouses laid out on a radial plan. By the Roman age, a mound has been built up to 3 meters tall and about 150 meters across, and there's been frequent renewals of the buildings. This village lasted a lot longer than Padapoi, and it wasn't located near the coastline, and it didn't start out as a Wurz. Wurz were introduced later on, as this settlement had been able to sustain itself on flat land. Now, the one that we know the most about is called Ferdinson Verde. Ferdinson Verde was worked on in about 1950s and 60s. It's a large mound, over 100 meters across, and we can tell that it was used for about 500 years, with occupation starting in the 100s BC. By the early 1st century AD, so about 200 years of its initial settlement, we can find longhouses and store buildings in the area. Each dwelling came with its own mound on top of the vert itself, and this helped form the next layers of the vert. This was a large settlement. We'll actually come back to this village to talk about the history of Roman and German relations and how it changes German culture later on. Now compare these three villages that we just talked about. Yapadapole, which is a small village along the coast that didn't last too long. Then we have Inzinge, which did last a long time and didn't start out as a vote, but was transformed into one later on. Then we have Ferdersen Verde, which started out as a vote and grew into a decently sized village. Well, as you can see, votes are spreading. With our second village, Inzinge, it doesn't start out as a vote. It's transformed into one, meaning that the people who came there didn't initially think of the idea of building a mound to protect their homes, but must have been introduced to it later on. We can also see that Wurz will continue on into the German-Roman period. So Wurz will form the basis of these village lives. These mounds will be where they build their houses, where they build their storage centers. Now, as we move further south, it'll take a while for these Wurz to be introduced, but they will eventually spread that way. The longhouses and, the, and these structures for storage we see throughout the early German area. We can tell that from these villages that none of them turned into major massive cities. Instead, the focus for the people is small farming villages sustaining themselves. Now we'll talk a little bit about tribes and society based on these words, but we're not going to get too much into depth about it right now. We do know that the tribes 
were built around the longhouse, and they were built around these small farming villages. The houses are separate from one another, and they are on their own vote, as we saw at Ferrisen Verde. Based on the size of these longhouses, we can see that individual families form the basis for German society, and the nuclear family forms the focus. So the Germans are focused on their own family members, and these families are working together to maintain their society. We can tell this because the longhouses are big enough to contain families and their resources, and that they're independent of one another, but still within the same community. We can also tell from these vuts and from these longhouses that German society didn't have a lot of difference between the nobles and the laymen and the peasants. And that's because there's not a lot of personal wealth shown in these longhouses and in the graves, which we will be talking about in a later episode. Think back to the episode about the land of Germany. There's not that much mineral wealth available to the Germans. There's some iron and there's amber. That's it. There's no gold. There's no silver. There's nothing to bring in a lot of trade. There's nothing that you can grow that will make a lot of money. You can't grow grapes. You can't grow fruits. You're growing stuff to maintain yourselves, to sustain yourselves. That's it. So without these tradable goods, there's no one that's getting rich. There's no one that is really becoming powerful off of this. And so families in these early German societies are going to be roughly equal. You're going to have a harder time telling the difference between a noble family or the leader of a village and a farmer. The leader of the village could be chosen simply because they have better skills than someone else, not because of their lineage or their wealth. While we see increases in population, increases in the size of these longhouses, we don't see increases in personal wealth and burials, anything that shows signs of stature for a person. We don't see that. And so these verts, these longhouses, you're thinking of a small farming community that's located just above the flatlands around them that protects them from flooding and allows them to grow crops and to raise animals and sustain themselves, maintaining relations with their villages but focusing on their families rather than large tribal needs and politics. One last thing we should talk about these votes, especially considering the first one we talked about, Padapole, is that these votes didn't protect them from everything. These votes don't come with walls. They're barely higher than the ground around them. And because Germany is so flat, that should work most of the time. You're not going to have to worry about the land working against you if it's so flat like that. So, relying on the flat ground, you should be okay for the most part from flooding, but it's still not that high off the ground. It's only three meters. But this is only for your houses. This isn't from your farms or your animals at all times. Those are still at risk. So a lot of these verts help protect you against possible flood damage. It's not going to help you if your crops or if your animals get taken away by the floods. It's not going to help you if raiders decide to visit. And so we will see population shifts in the written sources later on when this starts to happen. And as we can see with Patepole, 
they eventually left due to flooding damage. There was no way to sustain themselves. When disaster strikes, when the village is raided, when a flood hits or a famine hits and kills the crops and the animals, these people will eventually move on from their own votes. And maybe they will build another one in Germany. Or maybe, just maybe, they'll try to find a land that is richer. A land that will allow them to sustain themselves and protect themselves. A land that they know has more wealth than the one they currently live in. The land of Italy, Gaul, and Spain. A land that will eventually, in the mid-100s, convince two tribes to attack Roman armies in northern Italy. Alright, everyone, that will do it for today. Join us next week as we continue to explore the early Germans. Remember, go to the Facebook page, comment under the post about today's mistake, and see if you guys caught it. You can subscribe on the website and on the Facebook page. Go ahead and share today's podcast if you would like. Let's see how many people we can get interested on podcasts on Germany. I will see you guys next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you.